Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome. This is the Investor Coaching Show. I'm Paul Winkler, talking money and investing and how to survive crazy times. Yeah, you hear the news, you just go, wow. <laughs> Can't glad I'm real. really diversified. No kidding. I am really glad I'm like really diversified as an investor, especially when you get stuff like that. I don't know if you heard me a little bit because I was telling Nick, I says I had this guy in high school and he was, he was kind of the class clown. And he would come up to you, and he he just he'd take and he ball his his hand in a fist, and he'd hit you on the shoulder, you know, lightly. He just go bam, bam, and he'd hit you, and you go, Marty, what are you doing, man? He's like, want more? Keep it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> it just reminds sounds like me a of, bully to me. But no, 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 no. He was the class clown. He was just funny, and he would do something. He just hit you, and you go, want more? Keep it up. <laughs> be like one okay. more what i don't know what you're talking about but it just reminds me of what's going on over the middle east right now one more keep it up um <laughs> you know, oh, yeah i don't i don't know what to think about any of that stuff uh so yeah glad i'm diversified this is going to be my my term for the next you know lord knows how how long i'm just you know i don't want to have all my money at bank i don't want to have it all in real estate i want to have a large company small company value companies international companies u.s companies i just spread it out it's it's like you know what they uh, they talk about that in farming, you know the best best way to deal with manure is have it really spread out. <laughs> you know, just don't even try. Wow. Um, here's how. Yeah, I know. Here's you didn't know I knew, you didn't okay. know I knew anything anything about farming, did you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I just proven I don't. Um, here's how much money you need to buy a four hundred thousand dollar home with eight percent mortgage rates. Market watch. U.S. home buyers, as I said, you know, it's just like, what? You know, I've had people say, I want to invest in real estate. And I go, really? Right now? Um, good luck with that. U.S. home buyers face a tough real estate market with a 30 year mortgage rate near 8%. Exactly how tough is it to buy a house these days? Market watch worked with Redfin to find out how much a home buyer needs to earn to buy a median priced house in September of 2023 with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 8%. Not a, pretty, not a pretty picture, they're basically saying right here. And, you know, this is something I was talking to my son about. We were rapping about what did people do when mortgage rates were even higher than they are right now? And I said, well, that's when you had the variable rate mortgage. And the interest rate was based on shorter term notes at the time. And or you had... You just basically had balloon notes where you pay interest only. And then you hope like anything that when the balloon comes due, the note comes due five years, let's say, or whatever, in the future, that interest rates are lower. And you just pay the interest only. That's it. You just know you're not going to pay down any of the mortgage or any of the, excuse me, the uh, the principal of the property. So what happens here? You know, what's happening? Not a pretty picture. It says a median priced home... It's a better number to look at. You always look at median, uh, usually, at the with these things, because half is above, half is below. It gets sort of skewing. 
you don't have Donald Trump's house in that, <laughs> you know, skewing the numbers uh, is, is really what happens. You know, you, you look at a value of a really expensive property and it can drive the average way up. So you use median. Uh, so house median price right now is about 412000 as of September 2023. Yeah. That's gross. Yeah. My, my first house, 70, 76000 You know how much we made on selling that house? Uh, nothing. Trick question. We lost a thousand dollars. That's how great real estate is. Uh, not always so great. Median price home four hundred twelve thousand dollars. Now, says that this means that a home buyer, let's say if you're buying a house for the median price and you got an eight percent mortgage, and you put down twenty percent, let's say you're fortunate enough to be able to pull that one off. Then what ends up happening is that $412,000 house, you put down your deposit, your 20%, you still have to take out a $329,600 mortgage, what it works out to. And then if you have an 8% interest rate, now they said you'd pay roughly $3,019 per month for that. And I was like, $3,019, that seems high. Uh, it says not, but then it said not only principal interest, but taxes and insurance. Well, I looked it up. Actually, it's about $2,418 per month is what the mortgage payment would be. And for a lot of people, that's a pretty doggone big chunk of their income. Uh, so you got, man, you just do the math on that. 30-year mortgage, $2,418 per month. Forget about the taxes and insurance because that's going to be on top of that. You know, because your homeowner's insurance is going to be escrowed. Your taxes is going to be escrowed typically. That's $870,480 in payments. That's how much, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's how much you paid for that house. $870,400. So a lot of times people say, I gotta, I gotta buy it. I'm like, oh, wait till you really know what you want. Cause you know, let's say if you're not married, you're gonna end up in this place and then you're gonna get married and your wife's gonna hate it. Or if you're the female, your husband's going to hate it. They're going to want a different house. You're going to have kids. You're going to want to expand. And then now you got real estate. You know, you got commissions all over again. You got property taxes that you're paying. You got depreciation. You know, as far as things breaking in the place, you got you know like the difference of cost between renters insurance and homeowners insurance. You got you know the the taxes, of course, and the and upkeep. You take that, and then the interest payments that you're making on this. You know, look at that interest and how much of your mortgage is interest. It's a huge amount. Now, when in the good old days, because now what do we see people doing? They're going. I'm not going to sell my house. I don't want to sell my house because if I sell my house, I got to give up this 2% mortgage and go out and buy another house at 8%. I don't think so. But at 2%, that same mortgage would be 1218 would be the mortgage payment, 1218 I mean, literally, it's half. So if you do the math on that, it's literally half of that. So instead of 8 Eight hundred seventy thousand is three hundred twenty-nine thousand is what it actually costs to totally pay off that loan, and you know it's just you know people go ah man that's 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 a huge chunk to bite off to go and move down and that's where I was talking about last week I said you know the old old thing that people used to do was people used to go and take their house their bigger house they'd sell it. And they buy a lower price house and they take the difference and invest it. 
That's a good thing to do. Well, the problem is, is lower price houses, what's been happening is those prices have been going up. And the reason they've been going up is because the higher price houses, there's not as much demand for them. And people can't afford those higher price houses because of these interest rates. So they've been actually bidding for more of the lower price houses. And since you have fewer of them, you have more demand for a limited supply. What do you get? Higher prices. And now what's happening is you're, squ you're squishing the differential between what the old house sold for, the higher price or the bigger house sold for, and what the new house has to be bought for. You know, so that has been an issue with people. So what do you do? And, and one of these things that I, you know, I've been going back and forth, I've been having some clients look into this and see what's happening. But let's say that somebody's living in a house and they're a little bit worried about retirement and having some a little bit of extra money. Sometimes the reverse mortgage can be a way of getting access to the, the equity in your house. You know, so you have a mortgage on a property and it's, you know, let's say a $500,000 house, and you might have access to $200,000, $250,000 worth of just, you know, just the equity that's in the house, and then you don't have to repay. You don't have to make payments. And, you know, the reality of it is what do kids do? They sell the house. They sell the house, and then they pay off the reverse mortgage, and they split up whatever whatever's left. So it's not the end of the world. Some people think their bank just gets your house, and that's not the way it works. But anyway, so that, you know, that is something that people will do. Uh, in the investing world, let me just switch gears really quickly to one of the things I've been talking about a lot lately is how often I see people with investment portfolios that are just way too concentrated in the S&P 500, large U.S. stocks, uh, total market funds, like the Vanguard has a lot of their target date funds are total market, uh, Fidelity, same thing. Uh, indexing portfolios, and you look at target date funds, most of the money is in big U.S. companies. Well, and this is one of the, these things that I've been talking about, making sure, because when you go through calamitous times, you don't know when this kind of stuff is going to happen. But there were a couple articles. One was this one. Billionaire investor Leon Cooperman says the S&P 500 won't hit a new high for years. Now, whether he's right or not, I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. But won't hit a new high for years. I mean, literally talking about that it's gone down and it may take years and years and years for it to get back to, to just where it was. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because he thinks that they're overvalued. Now, that again, you hear me say that nobody can predict the future, but I think it's worth looking at in just, in essence, looking at what stocks are selling for the S&P 500 compared to other market segments right now. This is why I, I tell you diversify. Now, if I really thought the S&P 500 was going to definitely go down, I would not own any of it. I don't have much in it. You know, in a typical client, nowhere more than very, very high 7% of a portfolio around is 7% is in, in S&P 500. Typically more in the neighborhood of 5% for a lot of people. But it's not a lot of the portfolio, 20th of the portfolio being there. Why? Well, because I want to diversify more than that. But right now, the S&P 500, right now, as I looked this morning, is selling for $3.66 for every dollar book value. Well, historically, that number's in the neighborhood of around 2.4. So it's at 366. That's a pretty big difference. Now, even the total market, where you think, I own the whole market with a total market fund. This is great, right? Now that's sitting at 316. 
Versus if you look at international, the international part of my portfolio, which I, you know, I have US and I have international, the international section of my portfolio is at 89 cents. That's a big, big difference. Big, big difference. Uh, US, US small value section of the portfolio, it's a buck six versus 366. So you can see why guys like Cooperman would be saying, this is kind of high. This is precarious. This could be, you could be in for a long, long period of time where they don't do anything. And it's very, very possible. He says, you know, buying an index fund right now is not, is, he doesn't believe it's going to be a winning strategy. And I, you know, the only area that I index at all, you know, is where I, I feel really comfortable indexing is large U.S. stocks and large international. Now I'll hold my nose an index, if I've got a 401k, somebody's got a 401k, and that's all they have access to is small index funds or value index funds, but it's not my go-to. And it's for reasons like this, because it, they're in the same area. They're, they're much, much more higher valued than those actual market segments that they're trying to track. In fact, there's an article about that I'll talk about later on that very topic about indexing and some of the indexes that have actually changed they changed their methodology and it's window dressing. It looks good on paper, but what they've changed actually significantly could reduce returns in the future. I'll talk about that later. A uh, handful of big techniques, uh, big tech names, Tesla, Nvidia, uh, Microsoft have pulled the major indexes higher this year because of the Magnificent Seven. And you look at that, yeah. You look at the, the market this year and he's pointing this out and going, yeah, the market's really virtually flat. If you really look at it, it's virtually flat. The reason the S&P 500 is, is up as much as it is has nothing to do with the market overall being like wildly great. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Nvidia, Tesla, Meta, Alphabet, those seven companies have been driving the return of markets of the S&P 500 in particular. You know, so that's kind of precarious ground to, to be hanging your hat on. And just another example of why I say, you know, be very, very leery of your 401ks. Make sure that you have better diversification than you will typically find in these programs. You know, so, um, you know, that's that. I mean, that, that's one of the things I think is, is, you know, you look at what's been happening in real estate markets, uh, you know, the expense today is way, way higher than it was before the pandemic. You saw during the pandemic, people were moving out of the cities. They were starting to drive the prices up in these rural areas. You saw people working from home. Now you're seeing people working from home more. So what happens is they mean need to move. And they've been gobbling up properties where they, they may have a little office or something like that. And then you have interest rates going up because, you know, the amount of money and the cash flowing around has increased when you increase the amount of cash flowing around, you increase inflation and interest rates are highly correlated with inflation. So you can kind of see why the things that are happening today are happening. And as I said earlier, this is why you know, diversifying out of banks, banks running into the problems because what do banks do? They take your deposits, they invest in what? In real estate and real estate has been a little bit troubled. They're investing in businesses. Businesses can go through troubles. They've been investing in bonds with long durations and the bonds, when the interest rates go up, the bond prices drop down. Uh, and then you got the insurance companies investing in those bonds. This is why being very, very broad. And this is the theme of today's show. 
You know, I am not going to be self-conscious about repeating myself because I know some of you actually tune in at different points in time, but you need to hear this over and over again. If we want safety, it's not running to this thing that I perceive as being safe and then running over to this one. I think the market's going to do well again. You can't time it. You can't figure out when it's going to go up. By the time things look better, stock prices are already high. You know, if you look back at 2009, and, and, you know, you look back from March 10th of 2009 till the end of the year, December 31st. Yeah, like a 90% increase in value in, in stock markets. 90% increase. In, and most of that was in the very, very beginning when things just started to look better. But, you know, literally mid-year, Business Week comes out and says, oh, you know, there's reasons for optimism. Oh, thanks, Business Week. Appreciate you coming out with that article that, you know, there are reasons for optimism. Stock market's already recovered. You should have told me there are reasons for optimism back in March when I could have done something about it. You don't want to wait. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing. When is it best time? When is the best time to be prudent? The best time to be prudent is whenever you figure out what prudent is and make sure you're doing it. You don't want to sit there and just wait because, you know, you'll miss a little. You miss a lot. You know, the University of Michigan study that just pointed out says so much of the returns of your portfolio are simply due to just a couple days out of the year. A couple days out of every year, historically, going back almost 60 years. Man, that is a big deal. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning, tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. This is the Investor Coaching Show, and I am Paul Winkler, and talking about money and investing. And uh, so, you know one of the things that I love about history? What do you love about history, Paul? That it just repeats all the time. Yeah, <laughs> be, like the last well, 2,000 years. It rhymes, as I like to say. You know, it's just like, it just, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, as I always like to say. And what we do as investors is we try to use it to, we try to use what's just going on right now or what's happened in the past to try to figure out what's going to happen next. You know, if I could just protect myself, there's this investor's dilemma that people go through. And this is why investors fail. I want, I've got to predict the future. I have a fear of the future. So I am hence going to predict the future. Yeah, since I really don't know what's going to happen next, I'll find somebody that can predict the future and I'll look at past performance. I'll look at track record. I'll look at who 
figured out that things were going to happen in the past. And then I'll go, oh, that person seems to really got it going on. And then what I do is I look at past performance. And then all of a sudden, everybody's telling me, I got this down. I got this down. I know it's going to happen. Well, what's the proof you got to go? Well, look at how I did versus the market in the past five years. Look how I did versus the market in the past three years. How I did versus the market. Look at how I predicted the 2008 downturn. Look at how I predicted the 1987 downturn. Look at how I, and then since I did that, I must be able to do and tell you what's going to happen after that. Or what I'll do is this, is it just as a human. Let's see, war, bad. You know, war, bad, that means the stock markets are going to go down. And then, you know, you look at it and go, well, you know, actually in many times when we've been at war, the stock market's actually gone up. Uh, you know, so, you know, because, but instinctively, I think because war, I think it's got to go down or interest rates are going to go higher and, you know, interest rates are higher. It means stock market's going to go down. And, you know, if you look back through history, many times interest rates have been much higher than they are right now. And the markets went up, you know, so what we do is we do anything that we can to try to predict the future, whether it be looking at people that seem to know what's going to happen or if we think we have got it down, I might be an expert in one area and think that I can, you know, stock market can't be any more hard than what I do for a living. It can be more difficult. So then what I do is I try to predict the future and then I get overloaded with information because there is no end to the amount of information out there. We are bombarded with so much stuff. It's exhausting. So much information. So many people telling what's going to happen next. And, you know, we may be looking at war. We might be looking at interest rates. And it's something completely off our radar screen that actually causes markets to make the next move one way or another. And then what we do is we break the rules of investing. Instead of trying to diversify, we concentrate in areas that think we're going to do better. Instead of buying low and selling high, we buy the thing that had the good past performance and we buy high. You know, and instead of holding bonds for security and safety, we try to hold them for appreciation or we sell them because we think they're going to go down because interest rates are going to move the wrong direction. Instead of putting my money in an area and not moving it around between areas constantly, hence timing the market, I start to time the market when I move money around. Anytime you make a change in your portfolio based on a prediction or a forecast about the future, that by definition is market timing. Then I break those rules of investing and end up with performance losses. <laughs> go figure. And you go, wait a minute, I didn't lose money. Maybe not. You might not have lost money. And this is what keeps people trapped. They end up with relative losses. They underperform versus what they should have gotten over a given period in time. And then what happens is once they do realize that they've underperformed or they do really lose, or they really do lose, then what they do is they end up back in the cycle all over again. They're in fear of the future. Because I screwed up. Now I'm, I'm scared of the future again because I don't have enough money. Now i got to make up for lost time. And we go through this cycle over and over and over again. Well, inflation is following an eerily similar path as the one taken in 1966-1982, according to MarketWatch. Now, number one, dismiss this in a way because what we're looking at is an eerily similar path. 
Remember my favorite statistic. Butter production in Bangladesh versus the S&P 500. It was eerily similar. How butter production when it was up in Bangladesh, stock market, S&P was up. When butter production was down, the S&P was down. They found this correlation was uncanny. Now, we would look at that and go, that's just stupid. And you'd be right to say that's just stupid. You don't compare those two things. Now, in this particular case, this is a harder one to go, that's just stupid. And the reason it's harder just to walk away from, and this is why this kind of stuff can really pull us in, is because there are a lot of things that are eerily similar that are causing this. It says, inflation has been full of surprises throughout its three-year climb in the U.S., Yet one thing that apparently hasn't changed is its overall path when compared to what it did between 1966 and 1982. Now, why is that period in time so relevant? Well, the S&P 500, which is what most people have their money in. If you look at most investors, they have their money in large U.S. stocks or total stock market funds. And from 1966 through 1982, the S&P 500 had a rate of return after inflation of zero. No return whatsoever. You imagine yourself an investor. 1966, 1967, 1968. Surely 1969 has got to be better. It's got to be better. We had three years, right? 1969. 1970, 71, 72, 73, 74, 40% drop. Ugh. Well, surely. Oh, forget it. 1979, Business Week, the death of equities. Inflation has destroyed the stock market they come out with. Forget it. And then you go all the way to 1982. I mean, need I go through every single year? and belabor how painfully hard it is to be disciplined as an investor when you go after year after year after year of just going, can I just get back up to where I started after inflation? And the answer is no, not until 1982. Then it finally crosses over. But if you look at other market segments during that same period of time, international markets, 1970s rocked. They were really good, especially small international markets. I mean, really, really good. But they have this chart, and you look at it laid over back then and right now, and it makes you go, whoa, that thing is crazy. I mean, it basically, the way it looks, I know you can't see it because you're not watching me, but it goes up, and they both go down together, and then they both go up, and then they both go sharply down, and then that's where it ends. And then what happens is, you know, they're continuing the chart from 1960s, but we can't continue right now. All we can do is conjecture. And conjecture as to, is it going to continue to follow the same exact pattern? And that's what they're kind of leading you to believe in this particular article. Now, it says, if you look at, you know, the, what is happening here, you know, what's been happening is inflation is going well above, you know, in inflation in the 1970s went well above 10% in 1980s, but it's only peaking this time at about 9.1% last June. 
And they're saying that this time around, Iran's foreign minister, you know, back, in, back then you had in both periods, inflation subsequently fell off and then was followed by trouble out of the Mid- Middle East. And you got the oil, Arab oil embargo of the 1970s imposed on the U.S. Handful of other countries gave way to a second round of inflation later that decade. This time around, Iran's foreign minister has called to Islamic countries to boycott Israel, including stopping oil shipments. Now, you may look at this and go, wow, yeah, I see the similarities. But what's different? I think one of the things that's really, really different now compared to back then is, number one, remember Jimmy Carter sitting there and going, we are about to run out of the thing that drives everything around the world as far as heating, cooling, energy, movement, cars, you know, buses, trains. We are literally running out of oil. And what we don't necessarily think about is how many other possible fuel sources out there are actually on the cusp of changing everything in America. I've talked about nuclear energy. We got it. We've got it in droves. We have nuclear reactors that are modular. If something really gets really weird, we don't even have to deal with oil anymore. We can, we have other sources. Now it may take a little time to ramp up. I get that. But you got hydrogen, people talking about hydrogen, the possibilities there. I've been talking about that a little bit. You have fusion. You know, we've had fission before. Fusion, that's being talked about. Uh, You know, solar is like, well, (laughs) I don't know about that. Uh, But we have battery-driven cars and things like that. Over in Europe right now, you don't know if you guys have seen this, but they get these battery-driven cars, and they're saying that in America, they're just not going to fly. Nobody wants them. They're really tiny. Uh, you know, literally, they're small. They go up like 55 miles per hour, but they're little tiny boxes. You just get destroyed in one on, on our roadways, and that's why nobody wants them here in America. But, you know, look at them. They're fairly cheap. I mean, if push comes to shove, they're starting to get really popular in Europe. So will and Iran, or will in Iraq, will these countries with their oil supplies really hold these countries hostage when... You know, literally, you could people could start to move to some of these cars that are fairly inexpensive that don't even need the oil. Uh, could we go, you know what, we're going to have a change in leadership, let's say. And all of a sudden we decide that, hey, you know what, we have quite the supply of oil that we can get access to. And we're not just going to sit on our hands. We're going to go after it. You know, we're not leaving ourselves in a position of being hostage to any of these countries. I could see somebody, a candidate, you know, stepping up and saying, hey, you know what? This is kind of crazy. We don't need these kinds of pressures on us as a country. We don't need these kind of pressures in the world. We've got sufficient supplies to hold us and carry us through until we get some of these other energy supplies in place. We can do this. Now, back in the 1970s, we did not have that. You know, we can have a great change in the course of action. And quite possible that can happen. So, you know, we look at these types of things. We look at these patterns. We go, oh, man, this is eerily similar. I go, just take it with a grain of salt. You don't know what's going to happen next. And if it does happen, I'd be going, yay. International portion of the portfolio is going to (laughs) rock. That's why I diversify. 
Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.